VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I think there's been a mantra in Silicon Valley that's completely wrong, which is that technology, whatever you put out there, is good for society. It's historically naive. It's called techno-utopianism. It's just plain wrong. That doesn't mean technology is not good. It just means that it can be used for good and bad. And most importantly, that some technologies are bent towards good and some technologies are bent towards bad. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. How's everybody doing this week? Uh, I'm doing fabulously. My cold is gone. I'm feeling good. We have had a little blast of heat before fall really arrives, so it's, it's good out here. But I digress. This week, I have a great, great guest for you. And he's a return guest, in fact, who's coming on just like Gene from CELA last week, coming on with some kind of big... Really super interesting new news for all of us humans. So, Will Marshall was one of my first ever guests. The first show he came on was on July 9th, 2017, over four years ago. And Will is the founder of a company called Planet. And what Planet does is they make these tiny shoebox-sized satellites. They put them on a rocket, put them into orbit, and then every day, these little, very smart little boxes packed with cameras and sensors and everything else image the entire surface of the Earth every day. So the company has 200 of these satellites in orbit, and what they're doing is selling the resulting data to a whole bunch of different companies, governments, hedge funds, nonprofits, etc. They build themselves as kind of the Bloomberg terminal of Earth. Bloomberg Terminal, of course, you go on there and get the price of anything, or the status of kind of anything of value at any time in real time. And that is what Planet is doing because they're providing this real-time imagery of every square foot of the planet. So if somebody is clearing the Amazon or building a secret nuclear missile silo or, you know, some of their crops are doing well or less well, anything really, Planet has that information and can inform people about, you know, what they should do to address whatever it is showing. And what has happened in this past four years is that Planet, which started out, as you'll soon hear, with this kind of crazy stunt in which Will, when he was back working at NASA, snuck some cell phones onto a NASA rocket um, like a decade ago. These days, Planet is a real business. So it's a startup, but it's also not so startup-y. It's bringing in $113 million a year in annual revenue from selling that data that they're generating. And it's really shown that you can 
make real money in space and has been, for that reason, has been a catalyst for this huge rush of other space companies, which of course we have covered on this pod at some length. Anyhow, the company is about to go public on the New York Stock Exchange, and I wanted to catch up with Will just to talk about that journey from wild idea 10 years ago to now going public in a deal that will raise a bunch more money for the company, make him a very rich man, something north probably of 100 million, maybe 150 million, something in that neighborhood. And it's just also a really interesting glimpse at technology and the kind of policy factors that have all come together over this past decade to really make this thing get off the ground. Pardon the pun. And it's also about building a company over the long term because you know this is how most successes actually turn out rather than the quote-unquote overnight billions that we so often hear about out here so anyhow i think you'll get a lot out of this one will is super passionate and really very thoughtful about what they're doing but also the power of technology how we wield it and how silicon valley's kind of attitude toward that what it is and why it needs to change so Without further ado, I will hand you over now to my conversation with Will Marshall, the founder of Planet. Enjoy. You guys just had your analyst day this week. That's true. Yeah, it was exciting. I mean, in general, I'm really excited about going public. I think the Planet has now built this satellite fleet and we're ready to get it into the data that we produce from that into the hands of a lot more people and going public gives us the capital to to do that planet is ready for the public markets and we're filling this pull from the world for our data especially because of sustainability and the transformation to a sustainable economy which is basically about measuring natural capital which is how our data can service and and so the way i see it Planet is ready to be public, and the planet needs planet. <laughs> and so, off we go. <laughs> Can we go back 10 years? If Google is correct, you were founded like two days before New Year in 2010. Mm-hmm. Can you go back to then and just explain like why you thought this was a good idea or even a feasible idea? And also explain, you know, for people who don't know, I obviously know the planet story. You've been on this pod before, but like, what your satellites are because you know they're about the size of a shoebox yeah they're very very powerful and they're taking pictures of the earth every day yeah but just this very idea 10 years ago what made you kind of take the leap and start this and what were you doing before yeah so before planet uh, myself and a team of seven of us that helped to start planet were at nasa ames research center and we left with our team to start planet and what we had been doing there was working in the small spacecraft division, which was innovating mm. new satellite technologies. And this was a division that was at the NASA Ames Research Center, which is in Moffett Field, just next to Mountain View. Yeah. At the same time, what we're also seeing is this revolution in smartphones and laptops and consumer electronics, and it's just getting so much better, but especially like things like the iPhone and just going, wow. Because, you know, phones went from suddenly just being something that you could call someone for being something yeah, yeah. that you could email, get maps, get access to the world's information, and all these other things. It went from a phone to a device of magic. And we were in Silicon Valley where people were doing startups and things. So that combination of what we were doing at NASA and what was going on outside really inspired us. We'd always been motivated about using space to help humanity. And what we realized immediately at this intersection of these things was we could make much more smaller, more powerful satellites 
than had done before by leveraging the same consumer electronics that goes into your phone. So we did an experiment. We threw up three phones into space. I almost got fired for it. It's another story. <laughs> I'll tell another Wait, time. what do you mean you threw three phones into space? Well, we practiced our right arm movements and see if we could throw them up. No, we <laughs> sort of snuck them on the side of a rocket and um, ha- had them tumble around in space because they didn't have an attitude determination control system. But we really just, the thing we were trying to do was to demonstrate that consumer electronics just worked in space. We kind of knew that that was going to be the case, but we wanted to make a test of that. So we did, and it worked, and they took pictures, and we were like, well, that's really crazy because typical uh, satellites cost a billion dollars at NASA or in the aerospace industry. But what we had just done was, well, let's say at least a thousand times less than that. And and so we were like, okay, there's some serious disruption potential here. Just hold on one second. So I just want to understand this first test. So there was a rocket, a NASA rocket going up into space for some other purpose. Yep. And you took three iPhones. Actually, they were Google Nexus Ones. Google Nexus Ones. That Google gave us. <laughs> oh, really? And they, when we told them we were going to space, they were like, here's a box full. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk to some friendly folks at Google, they give you a box full of phones, and then you send three up into space. But how do they actually travel in space? Are they just like floating around in a fuselage? I mean, that feels like it's kind of... No, no, no. They were, they were popped out and they, they were orbiting the Earth on their own, basically. We put them in each in a little box. Oh, I see. So you once the rocket got to orbit, you released them out into the universe. They were free-flying. Yeah. Free-flying. <laughs> first phones going at eight kilometers a second. But, and then we had radio amateur radio astronomers pick up the signal. So anyway, it's long story short that what we realized was that we could really radically increase the capability per kilogram going into right. orbit. And always the challenge with space was the cost per kilogram of objects yeah. in orbit was so great, and still is, by the way. Even with SpaceX knowing the cost, it's still like $10,000 a kilogram. Well, yeah. you know, that's expensive, right? So you really care about what happens in each kilogram. And so, you know, by seeing that we could make, instead of something weighing 10 tons, we could make it weigh a few kilograms and do roughly the same thing because the miniaturization of computers, miniaturization of sensors, miniaturization of everything, especially that was going on for consumer electronics, we could do something radically different. And that's when we realized that uh, we should probably leave NASA and do this as a business because what we could do is was so important for the world. And it was much more applied. You know, NASA's about exploration and science. Yeah. And yeah. this was going to be about how can we help agriculture? How can we help illegal deforestation? How can we help refugee monitoring? How can we help all the challenges of the world through more regular imagery of the Earth? And so we left NASA to form Planet, and uh, the rest is history. So you were almost fired for that stunt? I was. I was almost fired several times, but, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> but how did they find out that? Did they just, well, was, was there a camera that was, was like, oh, wait, are those some Google Nexus phones <laughs> that are flying out of the fuselage? Well, if I remember, it was quite late that they found out, and that was part of the problem. <laughs> they were like, it's like what the already heck? on the launch pad. You're putting phones in space. And I was like, it's going to be cool. You know, we're going to demonstrate how consumer electronic works in space. And, yeah, I, it was tender hooks that day but anyway it was worth it and uh, yeah. they themselves admitted that but it was a challenge initially <laughs> <laughs> and the last question about that stunt how did they actually take the photos if they're in space and you're down on the ground they were tumbling around with their cameras on their phone they took yeah pictures but who's actually you actually have to press 
the so we put a little take... program on it that had oh i see just like oh, okay. pictures right. occasionally obviously gotcha. we didn't have a person up there pressing the button and <laughs> and then we had amateur radio astronomers around the world pick up our data with little yaggy antennas little like meter long antennas you hold with your ground and we told them when the satellite was going across yeah. they took they downlinked bits of our pictures and we they emailed them to us and then we put them back into pictures and we we're like okay this works that's hilarious. It is hilarious, yeah. So, and had you ever started a company before? Nope. Were you at all trepidatious about like, okay, I'm going to chuck in this job at NASA, which is like, NASA is one of those places to be like, yeah, 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 I work at NASA. And people are like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no, I had no trepidation whatsoever. It was obvious. It was the stars aligned moment of our right. lives. This capability could have dramatic impact on helping the world. And I, we've been focused on the technology, but the applications are huge. You know, what we set up to do when we left NASA was Planet's mission, which is to image the whole world every day and make that data accessible and actionable. And by imaging the whole world every day, our thought was that we would help us to take care of spaceship Earth in the broader sense. I mean, help wide range of industries, agriculture, forestry, energy, insurance, finance, governments, monitor everything and manage resources better. And especially yeah. with the transition to a sustainable economy, what we needed to do is measure natural capital. You know, we were assuming in the economy that capital from nature, water, air, trees, whatever, mm. was free. And it's not free. It really costs us to use it and or pollute it or what have you. And what we needed to help take care of that and to help that transition was more rapid imagery of the whole earth and that we figured out with about a about hundred of these satellites we could image the whole earth every day and track changes across the planet and that's what we set about doing and that's what four years ago we achieved right and now you have about 200 ish mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. or less circling the planet at any one time yeah we it took launching i mean we many world first we put the most satellites up in human history we put the most satellites on a rocket in human history. We also blew up the most satellites in human history on a single <laughs> rocket. We, lots of trials and tribulations, good and bad. But now, yeah, we have 200 satellites in orbit. It's, it's the largest fleet of Earth imaging satellites in human history. And yeah, we image the whole Earth every day to about three meter resolution. Right. And I'm curious, I don't know if you have a sense of, like, you know, you're at NASA and you're experimenting with this stuff. Because to your point, I mean, everybody sees the iPhone. Surely you can't have been the, or maybe you were, the first people who are like, hey, what about, what if we just take this technology and make satellites using this stuff? Yeah. It feels like in a lot of, I guess, a lot of good ideas. In retrospect, it feels very obvious. Yeah, I think it is somewhat obvious. But remember, you know, the iPhone hasn't been out that long. And so, you know, yeah. it takes a few years. And, and you have to be crazy enough to leave NASA and do things and whatever. And, of course, it's not simple. And, you know, many other people outside of NASA might have had the same idea. But... I mean, we make it sound a little bit trivial in this conversation so far, but we had to develop all of our own radio systems, all of our own telescope systems, all of our own motherboards. Yeah. I mean, the inside of our satellite does look like the inside of a phone, iPhone, but we had to design all that shit. <laughs> I mean, we didn't design the underlying right. chips. You know, we leveraged those oh, chips wow. that are developed for the iPhone and other consumer electronics like you have in your laptop and right. things, and WiMAX radio components. But the, all the radio stack is our own. The, all the boards are our own. All the attitude determination control systems are our own. Our own star cameras, our own reaction wheels, our own everything to build up wow. what is stuffed to the gunnel little box full of the latest technology. 
So, you know, it took us many years to build the kind of systems that we have inside of this little box. And when did the first ones go up in orbit? The very first ones were 2013, first test Right. Ones. And presumably those 2013 ones are dramatically crude compared to yeah. what's up there now? We had a 10,000x improvement in capability per satellite over this period. 10,000x? In, in data produced per day per satellite, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and now wow. each, each one images about 3 million square kilometers of area of land per day. So in total, we image, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of square kilometers over twice the area of the landmass of the Earth every day. Was it hard to raise the first money? Uh, no, not that hard, actually. Who was the first backers? Uh, well, the very first uh, backer was really Steve Jervison okay. at DFJ. And yeah. he was the lead uh, investor of... SpaceX, SpaceX and Tesla, right. and so we've often gone into the hard tech. And he was joined by Capricorn, Dependa and Yon from Capricorn, and by O'Reilly Alphatech Ventures, so Tim O'Reilly and Mark Jacobson. Those were our very seed investors, and it was yeah, yeah. really cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, we actually never had a PowerPoint deck. We just went to these people's office and plonked a satellite on the desk and said, we're going to change the world, and this is how. And uh, we had thought through a business plan and the fact that this we could yeah. sell the imagery and it was really a meaningful one. And uh, yeah, they gave us money. Right. The other thing I was struck by when I was going through all of your stuff that you guys have put out is this is like actually a real business, like $110 million a year people are paying for this stuff. This is yeah. significant. Yeah. And it's kind of one of those things that was not available previously, but now people are paying a lot for. I mean, what is it? Are there some examples you can give of what people are able to do with this and things that this allows people to do that that previously just was not possible? Well, there's so many things. Yeah. I mean, it gets back to this thing I was saying about this. We're doing the scan of the Earth. And each yeah. satellite takes a, a couple of million square kilometers. So, by the way, that's about 10 times the size of the UK. So, each satellite every day takes an area of imagery about 10 times the size of the UK. And the fineness of that is about 10 feet by 10 feet square. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I would use normal units, but yeah, you can use feet if you would like. <laughs> well, we've got a, we've got a kind of a transatlantic <laughs> audience here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true. Uh, yeah, strange. Uh, in in the world of physics, you don't use those units because you, you end up sending spacecraft that miss Mars. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's what NASA did. It cost them a few hundred million dollars because one person was using metric and the other other person. Oh my and, goodness! Anyway, but yeah, um, you were asking about examples. So yeah, take agriculture. We, with our spectral bands, can tell the crop type and crop yield. So we can say it's soy and it's doing this well, or this wheat or barley or whatever, and it's doing that one. In every three by three meter area of every farmer's field in every country across the whole planet every day. Now, with that, that farmer can then do what's called precision agriculture. They can see where in their field is doing well, where it's doing worse. Is it because of blight that it's doing worse or yeah. does it need more fertilizer, more water? What's happening? How do they improve? And that can improve crop yields by, you know, 20 or 40%. And that's a big deal. It can also reduce fertilizer use so they can increase their revenue and decrease their costs. Uh, using that. So there's an efficiency piece of it. By the way, agriculture is a useful example of a place where it's important for sustainability too. So we can also monitor sustainable ag practices. Are they doing carbon farming? Are they tilling or not? Because the modern approach is to do less tilling because then the carbon is, is pulled down by the right. uh, soil. And that's good for, it's, you know, we can get rid of a third of our 
let's see the 20 or 30 percent of our carbon that we've extra emitted into the atmosphere if we just do no-till farming so we can right. monitor those ag practices and help when governments are trying to incentivize those things with things like the european common agriculture policy or other sort of subsidy systems they could say, well, you can only use sustainable ag practices and then we can determine whether or not the farmer is and therefore whether they should get the subsidy. Um, so right. in agriculture, it's a super important commercial use case, also a super important one for sustainability. And uh, In forestry, we help monitor forests for companies yeah. to help them to do sustainable forests. We can actually see every single tree in a forest every day. So if somebody knocks down a tree somewhere in a place that's not allowing that, it's not a sustainable forest where they're cutting down trees and replanting yeah. them today, it's a forest that is being kept and preserved, which is what we should be doing with all our primal forests, by the way. We can stop that illegal deforestation and then we can alert police forces to go and stop the illegal loggings. And that we do that all the time. We can also help governments and we help them with things like disaster response. So recently in Germany, there was the floods and, the, in, yeah. and here in California, there was the fires. We're helping those departments of emergency services in those various countries understand what's going on, where the mudslides in that flood, where's the damage in the fire, where's it going next? And we also can help them with preventative work, just as importantly as during the act. We can then go, well, here, we should move this bridge. We shouldn't put houses here because that's in the floodplains. We can do all this yeah. sort of work that helps them with planning to reduce climate risk. So there's just a couple of examples in ag, in forestry, and in civil government. Right. And in terms of defense, do you have any like bright lines you will not cross? Because I saw, you know, it's I think it's something like around a fifth of the revenue is, is from various national defense agencies. Yeah. You know, you obviously have this fine grained picture of the earth every day. That's obviously super valuable for certain parties. But are there kind of, yeah, what are the bright lines in terms of who you will work with, who you won't, what kind of info you offer or not, et cetera? Yeah. Firstly, on the value proposition, there is a lot of value. And what we do is we see all the threats around the world and countries use our data to find new threats. Actually, many countries have their own satellite systems. For example, the United States has its own whole agency dedicated to high resolution satellite. But they tend to only be able to look at very small areas because they're very high resolution. So when they know where to look, that's great. But we find the new threats. We find a new missile base in Iran. That's yeah. only a real example. We find uh, new nuclear silos in China. That's also a recent example. We found about 100 new nuclear weapon silos in Western China. So how does that, for example, how does that work? So you're just like, do, 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 do. We're taking pictures of China. And we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not quite like that. But um, in this case, I mean, look, we get millions of images every day. We can't possibly look at yeah. themselves. And so we are providing access to various people. In that case, in that particular case, it was folks at the Monterey Institute for International Studies that yeah. this data. So it's like a think tank, it's the university yeah. think tank that is particularly focused on nuclear security, and yeah. and they are looking for these kind of things, and they know what to look for, and so it's not happenstance. And you know, we yeah. don't scan all the images every day, and but people point these things out, and then. You know, and a lot of journalists have access to their data. I mean, this year's Pulitzer Prize was won by journalists, also related to China, by the way, who discovered, I think the BBC had helped to expose at least one Uyghur detention camp in, yeah. in China. This group of journalists looked at our data and found about 200 more across China. I mean, it was insane. And that 200? Yeah, oh my God. Huge, 200 huge Uyghur detention camps or at least potential Ouija detention camps. And this is uh, this was a big 
a scandal, of course, and it won the Pulitzer Prize, as it should. It was a fantastic piece of investigative journalism. Yeah. But that's because they have access to our data. We're trying to find yeah. if there were more and, and looked for it. And so it was purposeful. We do have some automatic alert systems, but you kind of still has to know what you're looking for. Right. And so because the other idea, which I think is kind of a nifty way to kind of uh, frame the company as like the Bloomberg terminal for the planet of, you know, and the, for people not in the finance world, Bloomberg Terminal, you can look up the price or status of pretty much anything, anywhere, at any time. Mm -hmm. But to be able to do that, you guys talk a lot about like machine learning, because you're generating so much data yep. all the time, yep. that the potential issue there is that it just becomes noise, like there's just so much of it, you just don't know what to do with it. And it's kind of not that useful. Yeah, I mean, look, the area of computer vision within machine learning, that is abstracting objects out of pictures, like yeah. cats and dogs out of a picture online on Facebook, has become extremely good because of those sort of applications. Right. We've applied that same underlying technology, that same underlying machine learning to our data. So we now we can uh, do things like circle the world's ports and just say how many ships are there and it automatically detects them or we can ship automatically detect roads or buildings or trains or planes or honestly if we can see it you can probably train a model to detect it so we even have a thing called train your own model where you say i want to find these things i want to find tennis courts i want to find whatever it is and right. you point out a few and then it will show you sort of Tinder style, is this one? And you say, yes, no. <laughs> is this one? Is this, <laughs> no. is this one? Yes, no. You right. do that 50 times. And then it will train its own, your own model that enables you to just search what you want uh, in your area of interest and right. uh, in, in, for your objects of interest. And uh, so increasingly, it's becoming possible that, yes, okay, there's 3 million images a day, 25 terabytes of data or even more now which is very hard for a person to, of course, look at manually, but yeah. the machines can do the heavy lifting. Right, right, right. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, just south of London, uh, Tunbridge Wells, near Tunbridge Wells. Tunbridge Wells. Yeah. Because I think it's really interesting. You're running this company that's kind of 
I think super interesting, but I'm always fascinated, you know, where people come from and whether you kind of ever thought you'd be doing something like this. <laughs> well, when I was about 15, I started building a telescope because I was so interested in astronomy. I mean, I, I saved up my pocket money for some binoculars and I uh, was reading all the astronomy books known to man, right. um, uh, mainly from Patrick Moore, <laughs> if people remember him. Unfortunately, he passed away a number of years ago now. And uh, then, yeah, I built this telescope. And actually, uh, at my school, they took me to visit Patrick Moore. I turned up to school one day and they were like, hey, we're doing a trip. <laughs> you built this bloody telescope. <laughs> we haven't had that before. <laughs> yeah, um, we're taking you down to visit Patrick Moore. I was like, no way. <laughs> you know, I read pretty much every book under that he'd ever written. But anyway, uh, so I was building telescopes then to look up. And it's not so surprising to me that now you look building telescopes to look down. Because I, I went from there into cosmology and early universe stuff and then astrophysics and did some space science. I studied at Leicester University for physics with space science and technology. Then I did my PhD at Oxford, more on quantum physics, but actually a sort of interesting theoretical physics as well. And then I went really back into space and did uh, astrophysics and then nearby planetary stuff and then the moon i sent a couple of probes to the moon one looking for water and we found water on the moon oh this is when you were at nasa you sent probes yeah. to the moon yes yeah so basically what i'm trying to say is i started looking further out and then came more and more back to the earth because i realized what really needed the most attention was the earth and yeah it was like how can we use our space geekery talents to help the challenges here on the earth and there's a lot you know from poverty to of course, sustainability and climate change. And we think and thought, and I hope to think now we've at least in some areas proved it out to be true, that more regular Earth imaging could help us to take care of the planet better and all the tremendous life. Because when you look out there, we haven't found any life yet. And this place is pretty precious. And we've got an incredible yeah. biosphere. And we've actually already wiped out 68% of the life on the Earth over the last 40 years only. So it's, you know, we humans are wrecking is that right yeah 68 percent of life has gone over the last 40 years yeah so we've got to stop it and uh, the main sources of that are deforestation it's overfishing it's other sorts of land use change where humans are turning land from whatever it was <laughs> in its primal state a bog or a marsh or a, mm. or a forest or whatever into something like a city or a road or a, <laughs> or an agricultural field and every time we do that it, we're wiping out biodiversity and ecology and anyway we've got to stop doing that and our data can substantively help with that problem right did you come from like an entrepreneurial house or your parents like scientists or they own business like what did they do um, my dad is a civil engineer my mom is a school teacher and okay. um, yeah i mean they've definitely encouraged me to go into science uh, so myself and my our older sister would often argue about uh, humanities versus science. <laughs> In the end, <laughs> we both came round to each other's disciplines a fair bit. But yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if it's a terribly unusual upbringing in any no, no, no. way. No, it feels like the environmental angle here is quite important to you personally. And I'm just wondering if you have a sense of how that has changed in terms of, you know, how people are using this data, et cetera, because it does feel... And I'm speaking just, you know, having talking to people week in, week out, there does seem to be a shift in mentality around what people are thinking about, what problems they're working on, what they think is important, what the next opportunities are. It does feel like climate is kind of taking a, a role that it hadn't had previously, especially in Silicon Valley. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be because every year we're, you know, have dust or ash raining down on us and can't breathe the yep. air, et cetera. Yep. But I'm just wondering if you have noticed a change like that or not, or how that kind of environment has changed in terms of and what it has done for your business. Yeah. So it has definitely gone from a niche to a necessity <laughs> yeah. the environment. It is no longer a sideshow. Every conversation I have with a government minister or CEO of a company, the environment is on the agenda. Recently, we had a, a whole panel. There's a Silicon Valley on the road to COP and how we can do more to help climate change. Mm-hmm. And Alok Sharma, the minister for yep. uh, president of COP, Sundar from Google and Mark Benioff from Salesforce and Catherine Hayhoe, a famous climate scientist, and a couple of others, we were all together thinking about how we can bring to bear the fantastic capabilities and technology to this problem. And I think it's right. super important because, I mean, we've got ourselves in such a pickle, both in the climate sense and the biodiversity sense that I just mentioned. We've really got to get out quickly. And of course, that's both switching our power systems to renewables to stop emitting carbon. And then it's really helping to stop deforestation and actually hopefully reforest large areas, uh, turning our agriculture to sustainable agriculture, stopping the illegal fishing and so on. And so really protecting the key biodiverse regions. And it sounds very abstract because you're like, well, why do you need satellites for all these earthly problems? Yeah. I mean, it's because the data, you can't fix what you can't see. You know, you, yeah. if you're not measuring it every day, you can't fix it. I mean, you can't just set environmental goals as a country and not measure the emissions. You can't just, or environments, ESG is a big thing in companies. It's the ESG goals. And the E in ESG is for environment. And people yeah. trying to ensure that all their products are made from sustainable sources well how do they prove that i mean we can actually monitor the forest where they're getting their wood from and make sure that the paper they're making is from a sustainable forest or not right you know etc and so basically measurement is the source of the action that we're right. going to take as a world as we transition to a sustainable economy this is not a minor thing this is a many trillion dollar economic shift of the global economy the EU is putting a trillion euros into it over the next few years. It's caught up mm. their budget into transitioning the European economy. Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the largest equity fund manager on the planet, has said, if you are not measuring your ESG targets, including the environment piece, we are not going to enable you to have access to capital. That's yeah. a big warning shot to all the companies of the world that are basically saying, you are, we're not going to loan you money unless you yeah. <laughs> measure these environments everyone's going to be doing this. And what underpins it is data. Data is going to enable this shift. And Planet has a pretty foundation. It doesn't have like the, all the data for all problems, but it has a pretty foundational one, the daily yeah. scan, and it's totally unique. No one else has that. So all these companies are going to need our data to measure their supply chains. All these countries are going to need our data to measure emissions. Right. And so we're trying to help them with that. And I want to go back. So it feels like there's a, a, a whole bunch of enabling technologies that have allowed you to create these satellites and, and analyze the data, et cetera. But the kind of a critical piece is also getting them up into orbit. I've heard about that, yeah. <laughs> and so, again, going back to 2010, if you could just explain what has happened with the kind of the privatization of kind of rocket launches and what that has done to cost. Because... Mm-hmm. That also feels like, you know, we're seeing it now, of course, with the space tourism, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it feels like this has been, you know, kind of been happening in the background since, well, since you got started. 
Yeah. It, well, it's, firstly, it's super exciting what's going on in the space. It really is a renaissance. Rockets, satellites, tourism, all of the above. I will say that I think, uh, you know, let me put a couple of facts on the ground. I've bought like 40 rockets in my career, um, 33 at Planet. What do you mean you've bought? You mean bought space on? Space on or bought outright. Uh, oh. For example, at Planet, we bought three rockets outright and 30 uh, space on a ride. Okay. Anyway, one way or the other, we've bought yep. the, the ride, if you like, a segment of it or the whole thing. And before that at NASA, we did the same. The launch cost stayed flat for all of that time and even earlier up until a year and a half ago. Until a year and a half ago? When SpaceX dropped their launch costs. See, one thing that people don't understand is the launch costs were much cheaper outside the US than inside the, the Indian Space Research Organization had a cheaper launch right. vehicle. The Russians had cheaper launch vehicles. And so actually, uh, all SpaceX did initially was bring the launch cost of US rockets down to what the rest of the world was already at. Right. Then... Just last year, they've dropped the launch. And it did have a difference. It, it reduced the launch cost by about 4x compared with prior. Well, that's a big deal. Wow. Okay. Wow. But let me tell you what's an even bigger deal. In the same five or 10 years, we have seen an increase in the capabilities in a satellite by about 1,000x. I'm talking okay. about for the same cost, what data can you produce or transmit or right. whatnot? Well, that's a revolution. I mean, a 4x is a big deal. But on the satellite side, we're seeing a, a total revolution. Some people have said to me, it's like the Model T Ford moment for satellites. I'm like, no, I actually looked up the history. And the Model T Ford was two to three times lower cost than the lowest cost car at that time. Right. Well, this is a thousand X loss. So we need a more dramatic analogy. And a more dramatic analogy is the mainframe computers to desktop computers. Yeah. You know, each country or if you had a few, one or two mainframe computers yeah. at crazy facilities. And then we went to desktop computers and everyone got one, okay? Right. We are that kind of moment for space. But it's not the rockets. The rockets are cool and there is a lowering cost. <laughs> but it's mainly the satellites. And let me even go further and say it's not even the satellites. The satellites are cool and that's what enables this. But actually, it's all about the data. So, you know, people think about moon and Mars and, they, and space yeah. tourism. And they think about rockets and satellites. But it's not about the moon and Mars. It's about the Earth. You know, there's two dramatic things that happened because of these new, uh, more capable satellites. One is that we have this daily Earth imaging from planet, which yeah. is more rapid information about the planet. We are wiring the sensors about the planet. And the second is that Starlink and OneWeb now as well are connecting the planet, you know, with more backhaul and more communications. Yep. Either way, it's about data. It's either about generating new data or it's about transmitting new data. That's the economic shift. I mean, the tourism is cool, but it's a tiny, tiny sideshow yeah. uh, compared with what's happening to the Earth economy as a result of space. And again, it's not about the satellites or rockets. It's about the data and how it helps that farmer improve their ag. It helps that country monitor their emissions, helps that company monitor their supply chain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are uh, so fan dazzled by the, <laughs> by the rockets. And it is cool. Don't get me wrong. I'm billionaires going to space. But, and I love it as a space geek. But the data is where it's at. I mean, it is just transformative. And this is an age of data and AI and how it's transforming the planet. And that is the useful thing. And that's useful for digital transformation. And it's useful for the sustainability transformation of the global economy. 
And that thousand X improvement over the last four years, what happened? How did that happen? What was the thing that happened that made that transformation so dramatic? The thing behind the thing was yes. the, the, it was the miniaturization of electronics. Okay. It was these things, like we began with. It's just the, the kind of continued march of the, the Moore's law. More of, and more into smaller and smaller, basically, right? Is that and use of a different risk-taking posture at NASA and in the aerospace industry in general? We tend to be building big satellites that with very specialized missions, and because of the nature of it, we don't want anything to go wrong. And then that causes us to, to it ends up costing a billion dollars, partially because of a risk approach. And the latest probe on Mars had a, like a 30 megahertz processor as its main computer and a two megapixels camera. And that cost $2.7 billion. Okay. And that's because they take a low risk approach. They're like, this is costing a couple of billion dollars. It better bloody work. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, how do you make it? better bloody work. You only fly a sensor that's already flown before and worked in space. Well, then you end up right. flying an old sensor. So ironically, these very expensive missions don't have the latest gear on them. We do the opposite. We take the latest stuff that Apple or Google or whoever are producing, and we throw the latest new sensor into space. Our last generation had 47 megapixel cam cameras. So like 25 times the power of the thing that made it to Mars. Yes. And they have quad-core processors, at least 30x the processing power of that Mars rover right. on our satellites that are yay big and cost like, you know, less than a, a thousandth of that, you know, mission, you yeah, know. Yeah. So like we take a different risk approach as well, taking the latest technology and stuffing it into these boxes to have to produce better and better data. And then if one or two fails, no big deal. We just put up more than we need. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask. They're in low Earth orbit. And then after a while, they kind of lose altitude and burn up and die, right? They burn up at the top of the atmosphere. Yep. So now that you have 200 up there, how often do you have to send, you know, another batch up? Well, we do it a few times a year. Um, we've averaged four flights a year every year for the last five years. So think of it every three or four months, we're sending up a new set of satellites. A dozen or... Yeah, exactly. But not exactly. Not the full 100 or 200 we're sending out. Yeah. yeah. 10 or 20 or sometimes 40 or 50, but like that kind of range. Right, 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 right. It's a complex management system, which rockets we pick, when they go, where they go, making sure that if one fails, we've got enough redundancy and all this. So it's like, it's complicated, but somewhere between 10 and 50 satellites ago. We did do 88 once, a world record launch. <laughs> Didn't you have a bunch on a rocket that blew up? We've had two rockets that, no, three rockets that blow up. We had an Antares rocket that blew up with 26 of our satellites, a SpaceX rocket that blew up with eight of our satellites, and we have had a rocket lab blow up. I forget how many are on that. I'll have to look at that up. Right, right. But that's just kind of cost of doing business. That is the nature of the game. <laughs> yeah. And have you booked a spot to go to space? <laughs> Myself? Yes. <laughs> no, I haven't. No, no. I would love to, but it's not a big priority. And quite frankly, I'm kind of busy right now. We're taking oh, our company public, which is uh, keep me more than occupied. So I don't have uh, time for that right now. I know I was going to ask because we got sidetracked on like the Chinese nuclear silos. But I was asking around the kind of the red lines you may or may not draw around who you work with in terms of especially national security and things like that. 
Well, firstly, we care about this a lot. I mean, yeah. why we started Planet was to help the planet, not to harm it. So yeah. we damn well think about it a lot. And secondly, we have a list of embargoed entities that we can't sell to by under EU, US and UN uh, sanction lists. Yeah. We just don't touch that with both people, organizations, nations. And then finally, we have an ethics committee that reviews every partnership and checks that it's above board, there's nothing going wrong, and looks at what is the use case, what is the actor with their history, and we have refused actors. I mean, I, I will say that most of the use cases of our imagery, it's very hard to think of bad ones. I mean, it's almost all like large-scale change, like tracking deforestation, check. It's, it's at a resolution that you can't see or identify a person. So it doesn't too much get into personal privacy. Yeah. At the military, you have higher resolution things when they're trying to bomb somewhere. So we don't often you know, get into a situation where people are talking about using our data for that kind of purpose. I'm not saying there's no per- bad cases. I'm not trying to, if you like, wash this as something that there's nothing uh, there. There are. It's just that it's much fewer than you might than meets the eye, and we are just very careful about it. And I do think it's the role of tech companies to not just say, "Oh, it's a neutral tech. Let society do whatever the heck it wants with it." Yeah. I think one has to be careful about paying God with one's technology, so to speak. But I think there are circumstances where you just have to go. This is our responsibility to try and steer it in the right way and ensure that good people have access to it and bad people don't. And in the circumstances that it that warranted, and we've put a list of those the the ethics committee look for we will not do it and we take that responsibility very seriously and don't use it willy-nilly but we also think it's our responsibility to do that in the right circumstance and is the ethics committee some people internally from the company or do you have like a a council of graybeards that you consult (laughs) or how's it work no this is at the present it's internal we have experimented with both and uh Look, it's early on. Um, I do think ultimately it makes some sense to have an external body, but it isn't really a good external thing. I mean, I think all tech companies should be able to appeal to some sort of tech council. And I've written a blog about the need for this, but Mm. at the minute it's an internal thing. The oversight board, like Facebook. Uh, Yes, well, I mean, in principle, (laughs) along those lines, I mean, you really do have to give it independence and lots of other things to make it right. Well, indeed. But it is interesting because what you're doing is like, you know, in a way... In the world where planet exists, you know, the kind of, quote unquote, the bad guys can't really hide what they're doing, for example. And what you're doing is quite powerful and it does get to these deeper questions around, okay, we've actually built something super powerful here and we have to be very thoughtful about how we use it. Well, I I agree. I mean, look, we're unleashing a data set on the world that has an impact and normally commercial or or humanitarian in nature, but it also has geopolitical impact. I mean, the two two cases I just mentioned earlier about the Uyghur concentration camps or detention camps and the Chinese nuclear missiles, and there's been many others, not just in China, we're exposing serious things. You know, they're they're definitely serious matters. And um, it is bringing a big transparency maneuver on the planet. I think that's generally good for free and open societies because you've got less to hide. I think it is true that in general, countries aren't going to be able to get away with these things. And in fact, I think that's a good deterrent because next Mm. time China or any other country for that matter will go, well, wait a second. If I do this, as soon as I do it, somebody's going to put it in the paper. So I can't very well just do it and pretend that no one's going to find out, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. So they're going to be deterred from doing things that, you know, so I think that's going to be good for human rights. In fact, we do a lot of work with human rights organizations. I think it's going to be good for human rights and I think it's good for citizens. Have you spoken with other CEOs and founders and stuff about these kind of issues? Because obviously 
Facebook, this oversight board, that's obviously in the news for obvious reasons recently, but mm-hmm. this broader idea of, okay, this stuff is changing how kind of humans operate in the world. We should really think hard about the best way to deploy these things. I don't know if you've, if there's a kind of a meeting of minds quietly amongst you and many others around like, okay, how do we do this? Or if it's still kind of head in the sand approach. Well, it varies. And the answer is yes, I do spend time talking to other CEOs. I figure it part of my personal mission because I talk to a lot of them, you know, in that capacity. And, and people are a lot often excited about the space stuff. And so I use yeah. it as an opportunity to say, but what are you doing over here? You know, yeah. and are you doing an ethics process here or how are you thinking about this? Look, I think there's been a mantra in Silicon Valley that's completely wrong, which is that technology, whatever you put out there is good for society. It's historically naive. It's called techno-utopianism. It's just plain wrong. That doesn't mean technology is not good. It just means that it can be used for good and bad. And most importantly, that some technologies are bent towards good and some technologies are bent towards bad. If I could magic away nuclear technology, the good and the bad parts, I would do it in a nanosecond. There are nuclear benefits, of course, in medicine. But my God, the existential threat of nuclear bombs is way outpaces the medical benefits. I'm sorry if I were to wish it away, I would, you know. And others, like Earth Observation, I would argue, is massively in this camp, massively good. And so that's why we voted with our feet and picked that technology to focus on, right? Right. And, And entrepreneurs should vote with their feet and pick technologies that are helping the world. If they're not helping the world, just because it's cool doesn't mean we should make it. <laughs> we should make it if it's <laughs> going to help the world. And even then, you've got to steer it because all technologies will have some bad things. And you, yeah. as an entrepreneur, have a responsibility to help. You're not the only one with responsibility. Of course, society should regulate. Uh, we should have a discussion in the public domain with people like yourselves <laughs> in journalism and keep it real. But the entrepreneurs themselves have a responsibility. You can't throw up your hands and say, sorry, our platform's neutral. Do whatever you want on it. No, not true. You know, the algorithms that check things on Facebook and prioritize things definitely have a huge impact on society. For sure. So Facebook is playing God already. The only question is, if it, is it doing God well or not? And, you know, that's, uh, there's rightfully questions about that. And uh, anyway, so I, I, I certainly think this is important. And yes, I have conversations with people all of the time about that. And when you say what you're just, some of the stuff you're just telling me, is it met with like a, who invited this British dude? Yeah, sometimes, or... <laughs> sometimes it depends. It really depends. Because as you say, the kind of build it because it's cool and then figure out the rest later. That is the guiding kind of ethos out here. Yeah. What was it? Facebook's uh, mantra, move fast and break things. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. look what we got. Finally, before I let you go, I was going through all the voluminous stuff you've put out ahead of your IPO. And this is going to crystallize a whole bunch of money for you. Is it kind of weird? I mean, you know what the company's worth and has been worth for a long time, but this kind of makes it real in a way. Sure it does, yeah. Look, I'm excited about taking the company public mainly because of what it does for the company. I mean, it capitalizes us. It helps us get recognized. I mean, a lot of people that can get value from us don't know about planets. So right. We're still a relatively unknown quantity. And it's it's a shocking. I mean, I, I often am invited into meetings. I meet the CEO of some ag company or, or the minister of environment for some country. And they're like, what? You have imagery of the whole world every day? <laughs> Jesus, I needed this like 
two years right. ago already. I need it now for sure. You know, the world needs to know more about Planet. And so Planet is ready to go public. We've got our satellites. They're working. We've got over 100 million in revenue, a diversified business. That's a mature business. And we're just about ready to take it public. So we've been preparing for this. And and it will give us capital, put us on a bit more of a stage and help us to ensure our mission, which is get it out into more people's hands to enable smarter decisions, not just the biggest companies and biggest countries. And as for my personal wealth, I mean, that's just, uh, I don't know, I'm mainly focused on executing at Planet, really. Aren't you kind of dreading, though, the public CEO thing of like quarterly results and dealing with analysts and just kind of that whole rigmarole that comes along with it well we had our first analyst day this week i actually quite enjoyed it i mean it's i enthuse about planet whoever's willing to yeah. <laughs> listen so, so i'm happy to do it i mean I, I do worry about the short termism for sure mm. and you know planet is building a mission for the long haul but uh, you know we, these things are all manageable we've got great advisors a great board uh, helping us think this through and um, obviously we weighed up the costs and benefits of this yeah. and decided it was very much the right thing to do well, I wish you luck. My kids are um, huge Toy Story fans, so it's like, you know, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> Great. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Will for taking the time to talk. I want to thank you for giving me all these ratings and reviews because I know that's what you've been doing. And, of course, for listening, for telling your friends, your neighbors, everyone about the pod and how it has just the best things in sliced cheese or bread, depending on what you're into. I will be doing something in the paper about Planet this weekend. Also be probably, for my sins, writing more about Facebook because, because, because that's what's happening. Anyhow, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can find me at thetimes.co.uk. I'm always writing. Every Sunday, I'm writing um, lots of stuff about tech there, so do check that out. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, make them gentle, please. Um, you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.